Uh, just after half past 12, but it's the time of the week where we cross to the States and say good afternoon to Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe. Hello, Kevin. Jonathan, how are you? Very good. Korea, North Korea in particular. How seriously are people taking these threats that are coming out of Kim Jong-il? I guess... Uh, uh, I, um, sorry, I guess, not the son, not the father. Yeah, I, I guess one way I could explain that is it's, it's on page three of the Boston Globe today. And if you read it, it's ominous. But I guess the other thing is there is an awful lot of, um, you know, a lot of stagery going on right now. This has as much, and I talked yesterday, it's just coincidental. I didn't even know we were going to talk about this on the show. But I talked to a guy at Harvard who, that's what he does. He follows the careers. And he said a lot of this, what's going on is they're trying to establish the credentials of, of Kim Jong-un. They're, you know, they want to show that he's in charge. And they're really trying to wangle some some diplomatic talks in Washington. They want to they want to push the South Koreans back. But it's interesting because you know Americans have a more a morbid incuriosity about this. I think they look most Americans look at the screen of this guy and they go, "Jesus, I thought Roy Orbison died a long time ago." They they don't really know who this guy is. And I don't think you know. I think if if you went back fifty years, Jonathan, this would be the lead news, and people would be terrified, and they'd be building bomb shelters. But you're, you're moving but missi- you're moving missiles sense. to the Pacific to Guam just in the off chance that they might have a missile that may stretch that far. Absolutely, and I think, like I said, I, I, it's surprising, but I think it shows how much the culture has changed from the Cold War era. I think if it wouldn't be that long ago that America would be up in arms and people would be terrified and they'd be going out by. Now we only go out and buy water when they say we're going to have a snowstorm. But uh, this is being, like I said, it's regarded, I'd say it's second tier news here in America. Is it always the case, though, with foreign policy issues and matters that don't, that don't involve navel gazing in the States that the, just proof that most Americans are completely disengaged with what is the outside world outside of the 50 states? Yeah, I think I think there's an element of truth to that. I think that sometimes is overplayed in Europe and that Europeans kind of dismissively just say all Americans are stupid. They don't have passports. They don't travel. Only half of that is true, Jonathan. But um, <laughs> at the same time, I think that you could argue just the other point and that we're not getting over. I, I mean, I would think that everybody in the world would like it more that, that the American people are not jingoistic and belligerent about this, because yeah. I think the other side of it would, we could be sailing into another needless war a la Iraq. Yeah, that would be uh, arguably far more dangerous. Um, speaking of things that are dangerous, Obama was talking about gun control this week. He was in Denver uh, continuing mm-hmm. his call to pass these measures that he hopes would reduce gun violence in Congress. How much success has he had so far? Well, I think you and I talked about this when it after Newtown and in, in, in the aftermath of Newtown. And I think I might I'm not saying I'm smart. I'm just saying it was pretty obvious that the Republicans and the NRA were going to undermine President Obama's efforts from the get go. And they have largely succeeded. Um, it's interesting because two things that happened this week really kind of explain a lot of the situation. Prosecutors out in Colorado say they want to execute the guy that shot up the movie theater. This guy is clearly nuts. And the idea that that is the reaction, we need to execute this guy. Boy, that'll solve the violence in this country. Let's kill more people. But the other thing that happened just yesterday, Jonathan, and if you see any video of it, I think you'll probably get teary-eyed as I did, is Governor Dan Malloy, who's a really good guy, the governor of Connecticut, signed a, a new anti-gun measure down there, banning about 100 different types of weapons. And he had four parents of the, the Newtown kids up there, and he hugged each one of them. And I defy anybody to watch that and not believe that we need more gun control. And yet in that guy, Wayne LaPierre, 
from the NRA get up there and say that the people in Connecticut are stupid and they don't know what they're doing and this won't do anything to keep guns out of criminals' hands. And I would say, yeah, that's true, Wayne, but the idea that any, any crazy person in America can walk in and get a gun is nuts. And they still don't get it. But unfortunately, Jonathan, they have all the money. They have all the power. The Republicans will suffer no consequences nationally or locally for opposing gun control. And that's the bottom line. It's all politics. What do people in Connecticut think of this? Because politicians will use a photo opportunity. Some of them are cynical. I don't need to tell people that. I'm sure sure what happened yesterday was genuine and the the emotion of the parents certainly was. But how are ordinary people in Connecticut reacting to this? Are they they horrified by it? Do they back the governor? What do they do? Yeah, the polling in Connecticut is identical to the polling nationally. And 90% of Americans want background checks. 90% of Americans think We should have mandatory background checks. The NRA opposes that, and so does the Republican Party. So, I mean, and what I just said, despite 90% of Americans wanting this, there will be no political repercussions against Republicans who oppose this. Now, that makes no sense, but that is the way it plays out in this country, particularly in the Bible Belt, particularly in the South. Just look at the map. If you see a red state... There's nobody going to suffer any consequences by opposing gun control. But the point, hang on. The, the blue states, everybody is in favor of gun on control. On that point, you've got 50 states, you've got 50 individual little legislatures who can introduce whatever laws they like. Are they afraid in the blue states to do something for fear of being struck down by somebody who is objecting in a red state? Why can't they do what they think is right for their state? Well, they can do that, Jonathan, but that's exactly what the president identified as the problem with gun control. If you leave it to the states, that just means crazy people and criminals will drive from Massachusetts to Georgia. They do it now. I did a story years ago about like an 18-year-old kid from Boston who got on a bus, went down to Georgia, walked into a gun shop, and bought eight weapons. He brought them back on the bus went into Boston, handed them out, sold them to other gangbangers, and they shot kids with them. So, I mean, unless there is a national policy, we can't do this state by state. It will not work. And that's why the president is right about this. That's why most Americans support this. But because of our crazy partisan political system, the Republicans and the NRA can oppose this and suffer no consequences. In fact, the NRA's coffers are growing because the gun nuts are out there saying, President Obama, who wasn't even born in this country, wants to take our goods. So that's what's going on. Sorry. Um, I want want to move to Ireland. Yeah, well... tickets? Yeah, there's plenty of tickets. So it's the year of the gathering, Kevin. You'd be welcomed with open arms over here. Um, I want to talk about a man who had a huge impact, not just on your side of the pond, but over here as well. Theoretically, we shouldn't know anything about Roger Ebert, but we do. Um, He was one of the foremost film critics, and he was part of Siskel and Ebert, which is this great double act. Uh, He passed away yesterday. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. I had a, I, I met uh, Roger on a couple occasions and had a memorable lunch with him in 1997, about two weeks before I'd, I was uh, dispatched to open the Bureau in Dublin. It was actually Dunleary, but that's another story. <laughs> but uh, Roger was, uh, I think, probably the most influential uh, movie critic of his time. And the interesting thing is he was not formally trained. He was a newspaper guy, and they made him a newspaper, they made him a movie critic. 
and with with uh, Gene Siskel, uh, Roger was at the Chicago Sun Times, and Gene Siskel was at the, Sh- the Chicago Tribune. And of course, as you know, newspaper people hate each other, um, and it's very. But they put them together on a public television show about, and they'd sit there and review movies and debate with each other, and it became an instant smash. It was the biggest, uh, most successful show on public television. And then they branded it, and then and obviously there's been a lot of knockoffs of it. And I believe even in Ireland there's sort of a version of that. I think I thought the critic from the Irish Times used to do something like that. Yeah, well, the, and so it, it, it was a, it was a much emulated format. In the end, you've got two right. guys who don't necessarily agree with each other who would uh, review a film. The, the thing exactly. about this, he went I, obviously uh, Siskel passed away a number of years ago. Ebert kept going. Yeah, he, he, he did he did um, team up with someone else, didn't he? Yeah, he did with another guy from his Chicago paper, Richard Roper, and that went on for a while. But, you know, the interesting thing about um, Roger is that, it, you know, he he lost, he had, had a terrible bout of cancer and lost a big shot of his chin and has not been able to speak since 2006. But he remained an incredible cultural force because he just, he couldn't speak, but he could write. And he was just prolific, and he was always writing online, and he tweeted a lot. I used to get like 100 tweets a day from Roger. And he was just, he was a lovely, lovely guy. And I don't think a lot of people know, he wrote screenplays for Russ Meyer, the, you know, the guy that did all the B-movies with the, the busty vixens. Oh, yeah. Roger wrote about three or four screenplays for him. And uh, But the other thing, I was thinking about this when I, I saw, uh, when he died, I actually went and found something that he sent me a long time ago. I still had it. I had saved it. And it's what he talks, it's, it's Roger talking about the importance of films. And I'll just, I'll end by saying it, that we live in a box of space and time. Movies are windows in its walls. They allow us to enter other minds, not simply by identifying with the characters, although that is an important part of it, but by seeing the world as another person sees it. Of all the arts, movies are the most powerful aid to empathy, and good ones make us into better people. Roger that Ebert. was Roger Ebert. Yeah, who passed away yesterday. Kevin, I mentioned The Gathering. Are you coming over here for this, by the way? You, I am. Are you? I just got the invite. <laughs> I, seriously, Donegal County Council, baby. You Really? I'll Donny- be there in June. Well, come here. When you're over here, we must make sure you take a you, you stop off. You'll have to fly into Dublin, so we'll definitely drag you into studio I when you're no, here. No, I, I am flying into Dublin, but I just want to let you know, the Gardee and Letter Kenny have been alerted. <laughs> <laughs> all all stations have been made aware of you don't worry <laughs> Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe pleasure to talk to you good man 53106 is the number for your messages 12.30 is the time this is News Talk Lunchtime Ireland's first national lunchtime news programme with the very latest news headlines enjoy